Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Evicted by Matthew Desmond. And we are about halfway through chapter 19 and a little over two-thirds of the way through the book. Please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. If you have not listened to previous episodes of Rockford Reading Daily, I encourage you to go please listen to those. If by the time you get a hold of this, there's future episodes out, please go listen to those as well. Uh, we put these out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Anchor, YouTube, Facebook, anywhere podcasts are available, anywhere audio is available where we have this up. So please uh, share this share this link on a platform for me. Okay, let's pick up where we left off at. Ned spent all day on the transmission and Pam spent all day looking for housing. She called so many numbers that she lost track and phoned landlords who had already told her no. In the fuzz of the afternoon, she dialed the number of the West Alice landlord again. Quote, we don't want your kids, ma'am, end quote, he said annoyed. Pam decided to try an apartment complex her friend had told her was full of, quote, crack and hookers, end quote, figuring the landlord didn't do background checks. But the landlord wanted a but the landlord wanted $895 for a three-bedroom unit. Pam couldn't believe it. Quote, to live in this shithole? End quote. It was then that she began looking on the Hispanic South Side. She sighed. Quote, well, I guess I don't have a choice. End quote. After calling on 38 apartments, Pam had only two appointments to show for it. One in Kudahai, a working-class white suburb whose western border ended at the airport and another on the south side. The Cuda High apartment was a two-bedroom place on Park on Packard Avenue. The rent was $640 with heat. Early on in her housing search, Pam had fantasized about finding something for only $500. Quote, in case me and Ned, I mean, who knows what'll happen, end quote. But that was close to impossible. Pam would rather have given a landlord everything she had than live on a block where most of her neighbors weren't white. Ned and Pam waited anxiously outside the Packard Avenue apartment. Ned told Pam to keep her mouth shut and let him do the talking. That was fine with Pam, who was due any day and just wanted to crawl into bed. Quote, pray and pray and pray, end quote, Pam whispered. Quote, there ain't no need to pray because there ain't no God up there anyway, end quote, Ned said, spitting. When the landlord arrived, Ned started drawing with him. Quote, I've been in construction for damn near 20 years. You need work doing around here. End quote. The apartment was clean and new, with the huge bedroom in which all the girls could fit. Things seemed to be going well until the landlord asked him to fill out an application. Ned offered cash, but the landlord assisted Ned fill out the form. Quote, is it hard to get in? End quote, Ned asked. Quote, we do a credit check and stuff. End quote, the landlord said. Quote, well, our credit ain't the greatest, end quote. Quote, that's okay, as long as you don't have any convictions or evictions, end quote. The second appointment was on 35th and Beaker, on a quiet street in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. The landlord was asking $630 for a three-bedroom unit. Quote, that's okay, end quote, Ned said, looking up and down the block. Quote, I can live with Mexicans, but not with the niggers. They're pigs. End quote. He grinned, remembering. Quote, hey, Pam, what's a name you never want to call a black person? I'll give you a hint. It starts with an N and ends with an R. 
neighbor, end quote. Ned cackled, and Pam forced a smile. She sometimes bristled at Ned, especially when he said things like this in front of Bliss and Sandra, or told them that their curly black hair looked ugly. But it wasn't like Pam felt differently, at least as far as neighborhoods were concerned. Quote, I would rather live in a motel room than live in a ghetto, end quote, she said. Quote, at least at the trailer park, everybody there was pretty much white. They were trashy white, but still, end quote. There were no variations in the ghetto as far as she was concerned. It was one big, quote, black village, end quote. The landlord arrived, a silver-haired man with a large belt buckle, and showed Pam and Ned in. The apartment was gorgeous with polished wood floors, new windows, fresh paint, and spacious bedrooms. Pam looked out the back window to see white children playing in a well-kept backyard. The landlord even offered to, quote, throw in some appliances, end quote. Ned and Pam laughed at Bell Buckle's jokes and started ingratiating themselves to him. Quote, I see you need some concrete work done, end quote, Ned said. Quote, I do good work at reasonable prices, end quote. Pam joined in, saying she'd be ready in a couple weeks if he was in the market for a cleaning lady. When it was time to fill out the application, Ned took a different approach. Quote, what's this? Credit references? End quote, he asked. Quote, just leave them blank. End quote, the landlord responded. Quote, what if we don't have a bank here? We just moved from Green Bay. End quote. Quote, just leave it blank then. End quote. After waving goodbye, Pam turned to Ned. Quote, even if the area is a shithole, at least it's nice, a nice place, we'd be living in an upgrade of a ghetto. End quote. Quote, maybe I'll get a concrete job out of it. End quote, Ned wondered. Quote, Maybe I'll get a cleaning job out of it, end quote. Ned lit a Marlboro red, quote, it really looks like something we could get into, end quote, Pam added. Ned felt the same way. He told Pam to stop copying numbers off rent signs, quote, don't worry about it, Pam, we've got a place, end quote. That evening, Travis told Ned and Pam they had to leave. They checked into a cheap motel. Sitting on a scratchy, overwashed comforter on the edge of the bed, Pam breathed slowly and talked to her baby. Quote, hold off until we sign that lease, just hold off, end quote. The baby didn't listen. Pam's water broke and an older woman staying at the motel gave her, Ned, and Kristen a ride to the hospital. The baby weighed seven pounds, 10 ounces. Ned thought she was big for a girl. Quote, that's proof that cigarette smoking doesn't cause low birth rate, end quote. He laughed. They stayed in the hospital for two nights on doctor's orders, being charged for a motel room they were using only to hold their things. Four days after the baby came, Belt Buckle called and told Pam and Ned that their application had been approved. Pam had two evictions on her record, was a convicted felon, and received welfare. Ned had an outstanding warrant, no verifiable income, and a long record that included three convictions, excuse me, three evictions, felony drug convictions, and several misdemeanor-like reckless driving and carrying a concealed weapon charges. They had five daughters, but they were white. Pam would have preferred the Packard Avenue apartment. Even if it was smaller, it was in Kudahai. But that landlord had said no. Their eviction and conviction records pushed them out of the white neighborhoods and into an area that families living on the north side dreamed of moving to. Ned squandered it. Three days after moving in, he got into a drunken altercation with the upstairs neighbors. 
The landlords gave them a week to find a new place. That was all the time they needed. Nat found a clean two-bedroom apartment in a working-class white area near Dickie's garage, near Durkey's garage, going for $645. It had a pear tree out front. Nat applied himself, leaving Pam and her two black daughters off the lease. Quote, people like single dads, end quote, he told Pam. The landlord approved him. Quote, the landlord doesn't know about me or the two girls, end quote, Pam asked. Quote, nope, but give it some time. I had to get a house and I got us this place in a week, end quote. Ned raised his hands as if accepting applause. Quote, see, good things happen to good people, end quote. Soon after moving in, a neighbor hooked Ned up with a construction job and Pam began working as a medical assistant. Ned told Bliss and Sandra to tell the landlord they didn't live there, if she ever asked. He told them a lot of things like, quote, you're as stupid as your father, end quote, and, quote, you're a half a nigger snitch, end quote. One day he got a kick out of getting all the girls to march around the house chanting, quote, white power, end quote. It emptied Pam out. She prayed it wouldn't hurt the girls in the long run. She prayed for forgiveness for being a failure of a mother, but she felt that the circumstances bound her to Ned. Quote, this is a bad life, end quote, she told herself. Quote, we aren't doing crack, but we are still dealing with the same fucking shit. I've never been in a position to leave, end quote. The best she could do was tell her girls, when they were alone, that Ned was the devil. Some nights before she fell asleep, Pam wondered if she should take her girls to a homeless shelter or under the viaduct. Quote, as long as we're together and we're happy and positive things are said, and I just want to tell them that they're beautiful because my girls are the strongest little women in the world, end quote. And then that brings us to a changing of the passage within this chapter. So let's have a short reflection. So the racism has been a constant theme within the stories of the white poverty. And I don't think that that is something that's surprising at all. And even though it is not the exact same thing, when I hear it, I sort of equate it to how uh, in a lot of t a lot of times in, in areas of black poverty, misogyny is a very heavy thing. And what's important, what I think should be stated is that racism and misogyny are both very heavy things in our society as a whole. But when you begin to, I think specifically when you begin to, uh, to look at, areas where people are in poverty you can begin to see that even people who are dealing with the residual effects of discrimination uh, or prejudice which if you are poor there's people who you are discriminated against if you are poor there are people who have prejudice prejudices against you and stereotypes about you that even within those classes or those uh, communities there are people who still buy into some of these same type of concepts when it comes to issues that don't affect themselves. And so I, I guess I'm, I'm saying that to say that when I hear Ned speaking like this, some of the first things that pop into my head are how I would feel in a situation if somebody was speaking to me like this about things. And I wouldn't necessarily be 
hearing somebody spew their racist thoughts to me, but I have been in positions where somebody is spewing misogynistic thoughts or homophobic thoughts or transphobic thoughts. And I think a lot of times when you're in those situations, it becomes a a weighing of the balances of do you feel like the negative effects of challenging this ideology or challenging this thought, these thought patterns, if the negative effects outweigh whatever positive effects you might be able to get from it. And to me, it's easy to see how Pam is in a position where she feels as if the negative effects of it will outweigh whatever positive effects of it that she has. She feels powerless in this situation with him. She, uh, she feels bound to him because they have children together. And also because as, as we've read throughout this entire book, people who are in one, our single parent, single parents and single parent households have an even more difficult time navigating through poverty in through uh, homelessness and through financial issues. And so she sort of has a leg up on the game because she still has net around. And so she sort of just deals with the pros and the cons of having him around. Uh, now for me, now to sort of turn that around to me, I, I think that I've been in positions where when it's somebody who I care about who is saying something, if we're around other people and some of the other people aren't going to say anything, uh, then I've routinely taken the position of trying to challenge the thought or trying to challenge the rhetoric or, and sometimes challenging thought and challenging rhetoric isn't always telling somebody what they should or shouldn't say or what they can or can't say, because you can't tell anybody what they can or can't say. Uh, people have the, the independence to be able to, you know, use whatever language that they want to use. And even though you might be able to, uh, in your in an isolated situation, get somebody to not say a word or not use certain thought patterns that 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 will not get them to not use those words or not use not have those thought patterns permanently. Uh, and so I think a lot of times you have to have a deeper conversation with somebody as to why they have these uh, these view patterns, why they have these beliefs. And sometimes that that's more than just telling somebody, no, you can't say this or no, you can't say that. It's learning why this person does say these things or why this person feels comfortable enough to say these things. Uh, and I think that as easy as it is to just cut somebody off for having these type of thoughts or for saying these type of things, for believing these type of things, uh, we also have to know when we are in the positions where we have to try to teach somebody better, to try to uh, help somebody to unlearn something. And I believe that sometimes uh, for some people, you are in a position where you just never speak to a person again if they talk like this or they act like this. But the other people who are not as, who do not have that same type of luxury. And so it's important to be able to communicate with people uh, as to why they have these beliefs. And then it's important to be equipped with the factual information that can combat some of those beliefs. Uh, so that's one. Those those are all some of the thoughts that I had as we were reading about these racist rants that Ned Ned goes on. And then secondly, my thought went to these uh, black these these black women, these black girls who are growing up in the house with him. And I know that some people use the term uh, mixed and uh, or biracial. I I still ascribe to the concept that. Uh, the idea, the idea that if you have any black in you, that you are black. 
because of how much having black in your in your bloodstream, in your genealogy, in your uh, DNA, how much of the, how much that can dictate your experience, even when you're not aware that it dictates your experience. Uh, and so these young girls are having a black experience, whether, you know, just because their mother may be white is not stopping them from having to deal with uh, the uh, racist experiences and being subjected to racist uh, ideology, you know, even more so for them, you see that because their mother is white and is in this situation with another white man that they are seeing some of the worst of the uh, racist racist uh, aspects of our society. And so I think about how many young black women have been in that position where uh, they've had to be around whether white family members or white boyfriends or white, white men uh, in their formative or white people in their formidable years and had, have had to been subjected to uh, being called racial slurs or having uh, racist rhetoric espoused to them uh, being told that they're not good enough or being told that they're ugly or being told that their characteristics are, are, are not to be desired. And all of those things have a, a greatly damaging effect on the psyche. You know, she speaks of Pam speaks about hoping that these things don't affect them in the long run. And it's inevitable that it will affect them in the, in the long run. There's no way that you can have this type of experience and it not heavily impact and shape who you will be in the long run. And, and again, all of these things are exasperated by poverty. Uh, yeah, Ned is an asshole, a racist asshole, but he this his racist assholeism is exasperated by the fact that he's poor and dealing with poverty. And the only way he knows to not be on the bottom rung as a poor white man is to de-emphasize the poor and to emphasize the white uh, and to put these put black people uh, and Mexicans uh, down but beneath him uh, and so those are just all some of the things that uh, my mind runs through as we were reading through that section there uh, and also this at the at the same on the same token before we move on to this these next last couple pages of this chapter we also seen how that whiteness that proximity to or We've seen how that white privilege also worked to the benefit of them finding housing. And so that's what's so interesting about our society and, and so interesting about these some of these concepts. Uh, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, I don't even know if double-edged sword is the... Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. These young black girls who are the children of uh, Pam they get the negative aspects of having to have this proximity to this racist white man, Ned, and have to deal with the barrages of insults and racist rhetoric. But they also get the positive aspect of this proximity to this white man, Ned, makes it so that they were uh, had better access to uh, to housing and to getting into having their own home, uh, as opposed to somebody who would have uh, had a black mother and a black father and the difficulties that they would have faced. Uh, okay, let's continue reading. Eileen tried a large apartment complex on Silver Spring Drive. Ali, number 88, never called back. She dialed the number, and the building manager agreed to show her a unit on the spot. Quote, we home, Jafaris, end quote, Jory yelled, smiling. Quote, don't tell him that, end quote. 
Eileen said, quote, this is our home, man, end quote. Jory joked again, elbowing his brother, quote, stop saying that, end quote. This time, Eileen yelled it imploringly. After another showing, another application, they were back on the sidewalk. Quote, I'm hungry, end quote, Jafaris said. Quote, shut up, Jafaris, end quote, Eileen snapped. After a few minutes, Eileen dug in her pocket, found enough change, and stopped by McDonald's to buy Jafaris some fries. Near the end of the day, Eileen and the boys made their way to their old place on 13th Street. Eileen had left a pair of shoes there. As they approached the house, they saw a little outside in the snow, pawing at the door. Jory and Jafaris ran to him. Jory picked up Little and handed him to Jafaris, who pulled him in and kissed him. Quote, put it down, dang, end quote, Arlene yelled. She jerked Jafaris' arm back and Little fell to the ground. When Arlene was alone, she sometimes cried for Little, but she was teaching her sons to love small, to reject what they could not have. Arlene was protecting them and herself. What other self-defense was there for a single mother who could not consistently provide for her children? If a poor father failed his family, he could leave the way Larry did, try again at some point down the road. Poor mothers, most of them anyway, had to embrace this failure, to live with it. Eileen's children did not always have a home. They did not always have food. Eileen was not always able to offer them stability. Stability cost too much. She was not always able to protect them from dangerous streets. Those streets were her streets. Eileen sacrificed for her boys, fed them as best she could, clothed them with what she had. But when they wanted more than she could give, she had ways, some subtle, others not, of telling them they didn't deserve it. When Jory wanted something most teenagers want, new shoes or a hair product, she would tell him he was selfish or just bad. When Jafaris cried, Eileen sometimes yelled, quote, damn, you hard-headed, dry your face up, end quote. Or, quote, stop it, Jafaris, before I beat your ass. I'm tired of your bitch ass, end quote. Sometimes when he was hungry, Eileen would say, quote, don't be getting in the kitchen because I know you're not hungry, end quote. Or would tell him to stay out of the battered cupboards because he was getting too fat. You could only say, quote, I'm sorry, I can't, end quote, so many times before you begin to feel worthless, edging closer to a breaking point. So you protected yourself in a reflexive way by finding ways to say no. Excuse me, by finding ways to say, quote, no, I won't, end quote. I cannot help you, so I will find you unworthy of help. Ministers and church ladies, social workers and politicians, teachers and neighbors, police and parole officers throughout the black community would tell you that what you were doing was right that what these young black boys and girls needed was a stern hand. Do not spare the ride. What began as survival carried forward in the name of culture. As they walked away from 13th Street and Little, and the detritus of their things still scattered in the snow, Jafaris opened his hand to reveal a pair of earrings. Quote, where'd you get these from, Jafaris? End quote, Arlene asked. Quote, stolen from Crystal. End quote. Quote, Oh, wow, end quote. A pause, then, quote, that's not funny and it's not nice, Jafaris. You hear what I'm saying? End quote. Jafaris' face fell. 
He just wanted to do something sweet for his mama. Eileen knew this and was touched. She would return the earrings later, but for the moment, she put them on. Jafar smiled. They had one more stop to make. As the sky grew inky blue and temperatures fell, Eileen met a white landlord in a flannel shirt and tool belt. Fixing up a two-bedroom apartment with such haste and stress, Eileen wondered if the inspector was coming the next day. She filled out an application, and Jafar used the bathroom. It was too late when he discovered the toilet didn't flush. Eileen thanked the landlord and, taking Jafaris by the hand, rushed out. A few minutes later, her phone rang. Quote, that was very rude, end quote, the landlord was yelling. Quote, and I don't like children like that, end quote. Eileen and her boys could stay in the shelter for 29 more days. And that brings us to the end of chapter 19 and the beginning to chapter 20, which is entitled Nobody Wants the North Side. And I think we got uh, got about 80 pages or so left. Okay. Okay. And so we see Arlene is, went through close to 100 places to look for to look for housing and so we just see how difficult and arduous a task it is for people who don't have who people who have limited resources and people who are not in maybe the most advantageous situations to find housing uh, especially when they're in dire need of it and we see here she has 29 more days so she can stay at the shelter. Uh, and then at that point, if she hasn't found a, found a place, you know, I'm not sure what her options will be. Uh, and so, again, this book just gives us a, a very detailed inspection of the lives of people who are at the margins of of housing and what that experience is like. And to me, like I've said this before, I'll say it again. To me, this book goes as a, a great, it's very compatible with, I was looking for another word I was looking for, but it's very compatible with uh, the color of law, high risers and citizens, cops and power. And they all sort of tell a different aspect of how housing effects, housing affects uh, police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And this, to me, one of the main aspects of of that is that housing is a, the housing crisis or issues in housing is a residual effect of dealing with poverty. And poverty is a direct effect of police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. Uh, so, we will be back tomorrow with another episode of Rockford Reading Daily as we continue to read Evicted by Matthew Desmond. And remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle against police, terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll let you tomorrow.